You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers Initiative, and here to talk with me about the assembled Avengers, and or, I guess, Guardians? Is John Mills. Yes, we're the Avengers of the Guarded Galaxy. That's what we are. That's mm, that's our new name. Mm. That's our new branding. And what about the Defenders? Do, uh, we, do we throw them in somewhere? Uh, like the, the Defenders, defenders of... The Avenging Defenders of no, the it's, Guardians it's, of the Galaxy? It's the Defenders of the Avenged Section of New York that oh, is guarded right. by the Galaxians. That's, that's the okay. spinoff. Yeah. That's the okay. spinoff. It's not confusing like at all. It. I like it. It's a mouthful. Well... It, we are here at Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and it's going to be so much fun to talk about that. Just huge thank you to everybody who's listening. We really appreciate it. Um, of course, you know, follow us on Twitter at the 602 Club, on Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm, and you can, of course, find the website at trek.fm. You can talk to listeners from all over the world on the listeners only discussion group on Facebook called the Babel Conference. And, of course, uh, if you'd like to send us an email, you can do that over at track.fm slash contact. So, so many different places to find us. But, John, we're here at Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and nothing crazy happens behind the scenes because, well, this is James Gunn's baby. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, because he makes this statement many a times in... Uh, when I read about him making these films and everything, is that uh, he doesn't care about the overall what's happening in the MCU. He focuses on the Guardian of the Galaxy movies. And do you feel that when you're watching these first two films, and especially as we move into this second film, that it's like this is more of kind of like almost a self-contained part of the universe that has some implications for the rest of it, but that's not what... Their point is, I, I mean, absolutely. I think this one is even more than the first one, basically completely divorced from the NCU in a large sense. In the first one, an infinity stone is still at the center of the story. Like it's a mm-hmm. major plot piece because, you know, it, it's put in the hammer and, you know, running the accuser and all of that type of stuff. So the, and, you know, and Thanos and everything, in this one, it's literally this is where resolving something about Peter Quill and the crew. And I, I honestly, like the MCU as a whole barely enters my brain while I'm watching this one. I know that it's part of the MCU because it must be, but not in a substantive way. I mean, I, I'm guessing with the leading question counselor that that you're of the same position. I mean, yeah, I was just... I was really struck by the way in which he's able to do that. And I, I think it's it's what makes these movies good in that sense. Um, because you don't necessarily have had... I mean, these are specifically MCU movies that you don't have to have seen all the other MCU movies to actually enjoy. Mm-hmm. You can legitimately watch Guardians and Guardians 2 and never have seen the rest of the MCU 
which is kind of crazy, really, um, because so much of this we've talked about have become like television episodes where you just see this to build to the next thing, to build to the next thing. And James Gunn specifically kept that from happening with these two films, so much so that I'm really wondering what Guardians of the Galaxy 3 will be like since these characters have gone on to become a part of, you know, the Avengers films in Mm -hmm. such massive ways. So that... I mean, I would expect that has to change it. But here, like, again, you just come in and, I mean, the the biggest thing we get here that's kind of like an MCU type thing is the discussion about whether Ego is actually a Celestial in light of mm-hmm. the Eternals. But that's a question that doesn't get asked until when we're recording here in 2022 when that movie's come out. Then nobody would have known the difference. Yes, and I think also... What what Guardians Volume Two winds up doing is it wound up driving a point home because when we were talking about, um, I, I guess it was Civil War was where we first stumbled across this where it was oh we're in the lead up to the Infinity War and Endgame and we realized this doesn't really have that much to do with the stones themselves and this arc and i think guardians volume 2 winds up being like the rosetta stone of this segment because it really does drive home that this phase is all about building the relationships of the characters so that we have emotional impact in infinity war and endgame and here is not just about peter quill and his dad it's peter quill and gamora and gamora and nebula and establishing those things so that when that pays off later in Infinity War and Endgame, you understand why Peter is so angry. Like, it gives added weight to that. And you understand why Nebula is so motivated and so conflicted in her motivations. It's because of this episode right here. And so I, I give it a lot of credence for that because whether Gunn intends it to be, quote-unquote, a part of the MCU fully or not it still plugs in and works as terrific uh, motivation and character building for everybody. Now, what's interesting is you could then flip it around because you say you can watch this one without having seen any of the other MCU movies. What's really super interesting is you can watch the other MCU movies without ever watching these and you wouldn't miss them. Not in any real way. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the only way that you do is, is like you said, the the character development part. So when we get to that part in Infinity War and, you know, Peter makes the decision that he does that, that you know, has meaning to you. Otherwise, you'd just be like, why do I care about these characters, you mm-hmm. know? So, I mean, there there is that. Um, and I, again, I think you already rightly connected that um, to those films. But yeah, I mean, you know... And it's interesting because, you know, what happens here, uh, especially like with the stinger for this, um, specifically is Adam Warlock, which was meant to be a bigger part in the film. And then they, you know, Gunn decided there was too much going on. He didn't want to try and cram all that in. And so he just left that for the stinger and to give a, you know, hope for what will come next. And and yet, well, I, I mean, can I interject there? Because yeah, sure. Go ahead. as a longtime comic book fan, 
it's one of the greatest fake outs in the world because in the comic books, Adam Warlock figures very huge in the Infinity Gauntlet. Uh, all the all the stuff that happens with that, and the fact that they had that stinger. I remember when I saw this in the theater because I did see this in the theater. Uh, it was wow, what it, it wasn't that long before. Yeah, I mean, th- this was one of those ones where I had started my my farewell tour because I was getting ready. You know, I was looking for, I was looking to the future to move. Like I, I miss Dr. Strange. Cause we start prepping. I see this in the theater because it's like, okay, well this is going to, you know, I was making more, more of a point to go to things, uh, with people. But, um, the Adam Warlock stinger, uh, me and Craig, a uh, longtime friend of the show, um, like we got super excited because we said, Oh my gosh, they're setting it up. They're going to have Adam Warlock go up against Thanos and he's going to figure into everything. This is going to be amazing. And it just winds up for the longtime fans or those who read the original series. It's winds up being one of the biggest fake outs, I guess. But I mean, I mm-hmm. think that they don't pursue it because Gunn was briefly fired from three. Right. I, I, I think maybe yeah, they, they, yeah, they made a, an adjustment to the story. In some way, mm-hmm. I, maybe not. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, it it is just an interesting thing to me. Um, and and I I think, you know, speaking of, you know, Nebula here, we really focus on her character in a way we didn't uh, in the first one, and we really get down to, and this whole movie is about family. One of the main relationships that we focus on is the sisters, mm-hmm. and we pick up on a lot of the breadcrumbs that Gunn had kind of sprinkled into that first film about what their relationship was like. And this is also something that, of course, will build into um, the Infinity War and Endgame films. But one of the things that I think is really interesting is the fact that, you know, they build this up about Nebula's hatred towards Thanos and then... They don't allow her to have her part from the comics, which is a little disappointing because she's also a massively integral part to him being defeated and um, does not really get to do that. And I thought that was kind of strange that they end up with that. But I mean, that's that's another film, but it, it was still weird because they really set it up here. Yeah, and, and and yeah, you're you're absolutely right. We you know, Craig and I came out of it. We were like, oh my gosh, they are. We thought they were setting up Nebula being there. You know, obviously none of it's been a one to one with the comics, but we thought at the very least it was going to be close to that sort of thing. Right. Um, and it, it's fine that it wasn't. It is what it is. But it, you can't help but wonder. It's it's almost as if maybe the fact that what you pointed out that Gun felt free to go rogue as it were is he was setting it up because he thought that's where they were going mm-hmm. with it or he at least wanted to put the possibility there sure so you know it's the ultimate backdoor uh, sort of thing but while we're talking about the whole family stuff something i really do want to address because my cousin made a comment about in the context of this movie uh, about yondu and you know referring to the type of person he is and let's be honest yondu he was a you know he was a bad parental figure there's no doubt about that but given the alternative of where peter would have gone it 
it, it, it was, you know, which one is the worst situation sort of thing. But what right. I want to, what I want to ask you is I really think the theme that gun hits on in this is that yes, found family can be just as important as blood family, but additionally that maybe, and maybe this is me speaking as somebody who, who is a parent, you know, maybe we need to be a little bit easier on our parents for their flaws because they're doing the best that they can and they might not realize the ways in which that they have shortcomings. And I point to that in specific because that very heartfelt ending with Yondu and Peter basically reconciling after Peter hating him his whole life and realizing Yondu was a terrible parent, but he also didn't know how to be better. And Peter found that forgiveness in his heart because he realized Yondu did the best that he knew mm-hmm. how, even if it was bad, right. even if it wasn't good, you know? And I, I just wonder, I want to ask you, like, do you think that that's a controversial type of theme in modern times? We don't seem to have a lot of room for that sort of forgiveness or understanding mm-hmm. that people are limited by mm-hmm. their own origin yeah. story, as it were. I think that's a really interesting thought because obviously, you know, this movie is specifically, and like we said, it's about family. Um, and really, the, you know, one of the big points in here is about the idea of fathers. And we see Peter's desire to have had a good father figure in his life. And, you know, he wanted the dad who was going to throw the ball with him and, and, you know, teach him things. And it's one of the reasons that Peter is who he is, right? Nobody was there to really pass on manhood in a in a really good way to him. Mm-hmm. And in, in many ways, he kind of turned out to be the same type of man that Yondu is. Slightly better, but in many ways still has a lot of the same foibles he still has a lot of the same downfalls that he has and yet you're right i mean yondu has this relationship with him in in that he realized what he would have been taking peter to and in the end he is saving him from something that's much worse Mm -hmm. and so in that i think the like you said the beauty of this film is is that peter is able to literally see the difference that Yondu is next to Ego. Mm-hmm. And he can compare and realize that, yes, Yondu was not perfect, but like you said, he did the best he could with what he had to work with, and he did save him, and therefore he is grateful uh, in a way that most people don't necessarily have the ability to do because we don't have the one for one comparison, right? Like it's basically well, standing next to each other. And so I just really think um I, that is pretty special and and I think a great message. Well, I I also want to say that it's not it's not that we're having a conversation where we're condoning, you know, <laughs> messing with people's heads or threatening to eat them, you know, like right. or or the right. sort of life that the ravagers had. Because obviously the Ravagers, and this is what I find very interesting, is Gunn goes to great lengths to show that the Ravagers themselves are worse than mm-hmm. Yondu. 
that Yondu was their right. captain, but not really of them sort of thing that he didn't, he should never have been there in a sense. And it's a very radical undoing of Yondu as compared to how he's approached in the first one. So it's a very interesting nuance that, that's mm-hmm. added to him. But I, I feel like just we're in that type of, uh, uh, that type of era where we need to be clear that we're, we're not saying that Yondu raised Peter well, or that he did the right things or anything like Absolutely that. Not. We're yeah. saying that Peter finds forgiveness for him because he realizes that Yondu was limited by his own short, mm-hmm. his own fault, sure. his own flaws and faults. Um, but I do want to get to, because you mentioned the idea of fathers, and what I find very interesting is, speaking of a father in the movie, Drax. What did you think of Drax in this compared to the first one? Do you? Because one of the things that I struggled with when I first saw it, and I think I still kind of struggle with this time, is that Drax seems to have gone in, in a in an unanticipated direction from the way he was established in volume one, where it seems he's gone into this more comic sort of role. Whereas the comedy of him in the first one was his failure to understand comedy. Does that make sense? Did did it play well for you? Do you think that it works organically that this is a logical extension and growth for Drax's character? I think that Drax is the only character in this movie that only works half the time. Mm-hmm. I feel like half the time he's working as a character and the other half he's not. And part of that is that I do feel like we have taken any seriousness out of him at all. And there there was there was a nice balance in, in the first movie because of, you know, what he was dealing with, with the loss of his family and all that. And, and like you said, in this movie, it is almost as if Gunn took all the things that people remembered about Drax and just amped those up and forgot about all the stuff that people didn't necessarily talk about as much, but were still important to his character, right, mm-hmm. to make him who he was. And yeah, in this movie, I just feel like everything with him kind of goes too far. Um, And I I think he's the one place I would call out where there's a sequel problem thing where, Mm -hmm. you know, we just exemplify everything we thought people liked in the first one. And maybe, maybe people still really liked it, but I don't know. It just... His whole relationship with Mantis is really strange, too, and yeah. doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No. Like, that whole... Th- I, I, it's the... Again, I, I, to me, it's just really the one side of the movie that's just not great. Yeah. I, I, I think it doesn't click, really. And it's it's unfortunate um, because it does, I think, wind up dragging the movie a little bit. And I think that that's especially unfortunate because so much of the rest of the movie flows so very, very well. Like whenever I think about the parts of this movie where it slows down and the rhythm feels interrupted, it's Drax related. And I I don't know whether that's just a function of that's how the script was written or whether they got a little overly indulgent 
about screen time or, or sharing screen time or something like that. You know, I, I mean, I think it, at worst, it's a miscalculation. It's not like something that destroys the movie, but it's something where, especially oh, yeah. in this rewatch, I was like, yeah, this isn't, this is maybe something I would have throttled back on or maybe even reshot, mm-hmm. uh, what, what, mm-hmm. you know, as I'm doing post-production yeah. here. So I hundred percent agree. And considering how many of those scenes are in just straight up blue screen environments, I don't know mm-hmm. why you couldn't just go to, okay, we're going to sit in a parking lot. We're just going to reshoot this real quick. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll fix it in post. We'll fix it in post. You know, like, I, yeah. I, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, that, that, that's just, that's just my thing. Um, what did you, yeah. uh, one of the things that I thought was really interesting in this film is, you know, we talked a lot about the relationship between Yondu and Peter and, and how that relates to his relationship with ego and everything. I thought one of the most interesting things was, the way in which we take Rocket's relationship to everyone and mirror that with who Yondu is and realize that they're very much the same people where they want to be loved, but they don't know how to be loved. So they just basically push people away and do things to which, you know, make people kind of not necessarily like them. So it kind of is this self-perpetuating prophecy of like, why they can't be loved or feel like they can't be loved. And so uh, to me, I was so surprised again, how deep we're going to get with a trash panda and a blue guy and that they're really going to bring home some of the biggest emotional moments of this film. And I think that again, you cannot, cannot overstate the importance of Michael Rooker in these movies. He is at one of the funniest, 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 funniest sequences of the movie. Literally talking to a tiny twig baby and a trash panda, neither of which are there, but Michael Rooker sells it a hundred percent. It is it is going to sound insane what I'm about to say, but Michael Rooker in this movie gives a masterclass in blue screen acting and how to sell it in such a way that you believe it. Because not for one second did I not think that Rocket was there. Just like Mark Hamill in The Empire Strikes Back. Everybody talks about, oh, Yoda, 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 Yoda. Yoda doesn't work unless Mark Hamill sells him. And Mark Hamill sold him. And Mark Hamill's yep. sitting there in Empire Strikes Back talking to a puppet and a puppet robot. And people completely blow past that with Mark Hamill. And I think people blow past that here with Michael Rooker because he pulls it off effortlessly. And I'm laughing during that scene where <laughs> where Groot is bringing all of the wrong stuff to them. Yes. <laughs> That's a desk. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> or when he brings the toe. And he's like, uh, yeah. let's never talk about this again. You know, like, it's such a fantastic, fantastic, uh, you know, character beat. And I, I you know, and, and to your point about Rocket and Yondu, you're absolutely right. And I absolutely love the line. And I laughed. I uproariously laughed at it again. The exchange with Yondu, where it's like, are you a professional a-hole? Yeah, basically a pro. You know, like, it's just so effortless that, like, and unfortunately, 
that's what underscores the Drax scenes not always playing the way they should because the writing obviously is spot on here. So why isn't it working the same way with Drax? I can't put my finger on it. I don't know. Well, and I think it's it's also important, and we you know praised him in the first movie, but I think Bradley Cooper again oh, yeah. shows just how talented he is in bringing a cartoon to life. You know, in that his delivery for all of those lines is just <laughs> pinpoint perfect, mm-hmm. so that the repartee between him and Yondu sounds so organic, yeah. and it's just. It is really special, and you do feel like those two people are in the scene together, and they always were. There there wasn't any blue screen magic or anything happening. It's just two actors playing off with each other, and we know he ain't there. Like, yeah. there's just somebody feeding Rooker lines, and then later on, he's just listening to those lines and responding to them in a booth, you know? So... That's it. It really is, I think, a masterclass in just the way to make these type of movies work in a way that makes it feel effortless and you buy it the whole time. And I think one of the things that we usually kind of save this towards the end, but I really wanted to dive into the fact of the look of this movie Mm -hmm. because, you know, we really praised uh, Doctor Strange for this as well, but they're very. There are probably a couple more times here, like you mentioned, with some of the blue screen work that we get where the people are just sitting down. But otherwise, this movie looks phenomenal. Oh, yeah. And it still holds up gangbusters. And I think part of that is that Gunn, and and we talked about this on Snyder Cuts, where Snyder has a visual look and style Mm-hmm. That everything's kind of graded in, and this movie has that same feel to it too. Like everything's kind of graded into a specific color palette. Yeah, and it makes it all feel very cohesive, even though you're going to like different planets and stuff. And it really helps with the effects work, I think. Here, oh, and so yep. this is another great work by the MCU here when it comes to effects, for the most part. This is great work from a director who knows what he wants visually. A director who knows what he wants visually, the effects crew is going to respond to that. And it's very obvious to me that there aren't a lot of last-minute reshoots and compositions. There are probably a couple here and there. There are a couple of shots I could point out where I'm like, eh, that didn't really work as well as it could have. But for the most part, it's obvious that Gunn sat down with them, went through the storyboards or animatics or whatever, whatever the process was, and said, that's what I want. This is what it should look like. And the effects team said, got it, boss. You're good. And they delivered it. And that's exactly how it should work. And that's exactly how it did, or it appears to have. But just for the sake of being me, I feel I have to point out that one of the things that doesn't work particularly well, and instantly in my brain, I start breaking it down as, well, how, how could we have practically done a couple of things to make this work better? And that's when Peter is essentially playing ball with ego oh, and yeah. where they're doing the, the now mm-hmm. I studied acting in college. Uh, I, I dreams of being an actor fortunately came to my senses and became sane again before it, be, it was too late. And I remember those mime classes and just watching, mm-hmm. watching these two actors playing mime. I'm think I've just watched that scene. And I just think to myself, 
you know, they could have done a practical glowing ball and then just, you know, yep. like they did with lightsabers, just just draw around it because then you'll get the natural lighting and and you throw something with weight differently than you throw something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. By pretend. It's just you can't mm-hmm. help it. So that's just one of those things that I, I feel the need to pick on. No, I 100% agree with you. That That's just not the best scene. But speaking of, though, the villains uh, of this, one of the things that I really noticed, especially in this rewatch, was how both of the villains have the same thing where the Sovereign and Ego, they both see other beings as below them, and therefore they can do whatever they want to them without any repercussion to their psychological or, you know, uh, um, theological bent. Like, nothing nothing about them is going to be bothered by hurting people or using that people however they want because they're lesser than them. And that just really struck me because that is the antithesis to the rest of the film— which is this idea that all of these people of like different races, different beings coming together as the guardians of the galaxy who respect one another, do not see themselves truly as better. I mean, Rocket, for all of his a-holeness, does not actually see himself as better than anybody else, right? And and so to me, I just really thought that that was an interesting way to tie both of these very interesting elements that could be very separate from one another, but by giving them that common thematic element, it makes it work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, you know, it's uh, the absolutely right, and 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 it's one of those things where it's just there's so much that goes right with this movie, and we're sitting here having a love fest with it, essentially, but. I know already from me that it's not a five star. This isn't, you know, winter soldier level in terms of my affection for it uh, or, or or even Iron Man three. I, I got to I got to ask you, where does this movie fall short for you? Where where we've already taught we've touched on the Drax thing doesn't, you know, works half the time, doesn't work the other half. Where else does this not work? Are there other parts that don't work for you where you think structurally we could have done something different or we dawdle a little bit too long in this spot or that spot? Or even if it's something as you know, minute as uh, the score didn't really do it for me. Well, where does it fall short for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, other than the drag scene, I, I think the only thing that really kind of doesn't quite work is the whole scene between the Ravagers and Yondu. On the mm. weird planet, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there's something just odd about that whole scene. You know, it's it's strange for one for for what the planet is, which seems like a weird sex planet. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, and I and and I there's just something about the way it's all constructed to which it works in the end for what we do with the character of Yondu and everything but I don't know it just feels like that part needed a rewrite so that it flowed better with the whole mm. 
I think I think you got your finger on it right there where I think rewrite is the key here where you could have found a way to um truncate everything and and tie it together a little bit better with the sovereign and with Yondu and with finding out about the history of the ravagers which is a whole big reveal where it's like wait what there's a code and you're not wait huh because it seems odd it seems a lot more complex than it did in the first movie i agree with you what's the path there i don't know obviously sylvester stallone is introduced in the beginning because so that he has a reason to be there at the end and give that its emotional weight and that does work but i think that there is a faster way to it or even even a slightly different way to it so that mm-hmm. we get to the the cruise mutiny quicker Right. Because it really seems like that first part of the movie is somewhat detached from the rest of it. And I understand you got to get Peter to ego somehow, and it works for the way they get him to ego. But it seems like it could have been done better. Mm -hmm. But I think once I think once it irons it out and gets its feet under it and you've got the Ravagers, you know, having done their mutiny and nebula's there and uh you know peter and and ego and all of that stuff like once it gets going with the exception of the drax stuff i don't have too many things to pick on it for and it's just interesting because i think tyler bates does a great job with the score too i I think it's it's really good music Mm -hmm. you know this might surprise you but i think this might be the most successful score so far. Hmm. Okay. And part of that is because I think every emotional beat, the score really shines. There's a really good, fun Guardians of the Galaxy theme thematically in the symphonic music. And the score is enjoyable to listen to outside of the film as well. Yes. And in all three of those areas... The last time that truly happened for us, I think, was when we were talking about the Avengers. Maybe so. Sylvester's Avengers in uh, score, and and so yeah, I think maybe so. I'm trying to think if if we really praised anybody else, and I can't think of anybody else that we, I, you know, I just think Tyler Bates has proven himself to be an excellent musical composer for the MCU. He could do the action really well, but here, like, again, uh, you know, the moment where you have Yondu and Peter, you know, racing up from the planet, the music is so well done. It, it's driving home all the emotion that you want in that moment. And, uh, yeah, I th- I think it is great. Yeah. I... I... <sighs> It's difficult because Guardians of the Galaxy and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, I think, gives so much. Um, we talked about this with the first one and, and how Age of, you know, it goes Guardians of the Galaxy, Age of Ultron, Ant-Man, and it's this weird cadence and Guardians of the Galaxy sets the tone for mm-hmm. how we're going to approach comedy throughout the series 
And Ant-Man, I think, rises to the challenge, but that was under development for a long time, you know, with Edgar Wright and everything. And and, and Peyton Reed's just a, a terrific comic director, too. I think what's what's going to be interesting to watch is with volume two, it's almost as if this movie is dedicated to throwing the gauntlet down and saying it's almost as if Gunn realized that the rest of the MCU started envying his comic writing. And by that, I don't mean comic books. I mean, comedic writing. And so I think he, he turns it up here and says, let's see if you can keep up here. And I think that's also possibly slightly unfortunate uh, because of how, how that might be answered in other properties that are upcoming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I a hundred percent agree on that point. Um, you know, I do think we need to talk about one thing, um, John, where I believe that, because not enough praise, I think, can be heaped on this man, Kurt Russell. Mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, Kurt Russell is so good in this role because he's so lovable. Yep. Right? Like, you want to love this guy, and then he turns on a dime, and he is just hideously awful. Um, yeah. And I love it. I And I love him. I want him in everything. He is, okay, first and foremost, I, I've talked about my affection for Kurt Russell for years. If you say, and starring Kurt Russell, I'm like, ah, okay, I'm watching it. I think that Kurt Russell is also amazing because he has his career. You could divide the library of movies by with and without facial hair. And with and without facial hair always f- fall into different types of performances. Um, now, granted, the beard in the thing is different than the beard here or in, uh, you know, uh, the, the Christmas Chronicles, but there's, um, there is a terrific charisma that he just naturally has. That's why Kurt Russell's been acting for coming on what, six decades at this point is because he has that natural charisma. He can present himself in front of a camera effortlessly. And you're right. What makes Ego such a successful villain is that you want to like him and you understand why people would be taken in by him because he, and this is an interesting, I think, counterbalance with Yondu. And I don't know whether this would be at the script level or whether this was just, this was just something that, that came out positively from the performance or performances, I should say, is that. You're given the real comparison of Yandu is one type of bad parent and Ego is the other type of bad parent. And what is the psychological damage from these two different types of personalities? Because the person who love bombs and winds up being a monster hurts more than the person who's rough around the edges and doesn't know how to love. Like I I'm stating it clumsily, but do I make sense here where it's like that, that contrast between them exists and it's really brought out by Russell's performance because his charisma shows the dangers of the overly affectionate person who woos you very quickly into loving them 
so that when they betray you, it's even worse than if they had tried to kill you. Because, you know, uh, what what's the saying? Like, um, you know, only love can break your heart or something like that. You know, only somebody that loves you can break your heart or something like that. And it's just, it's really interesting. I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because additionally, you get to see him and this is just, you know, this is the face technology that we saw in, uh, in Civil War where that's the, I remember that Kurt Russell. Yeah, I remember yeah. him. I watched those movies when he looked like that. It's ridiculous. Like it's downright scary where they have him in the beginning of this movie visually. But yeah, no, no, no. I, like the reason I'm going on is because you, you, you have a really great point about that, that, that his villainy is awful because Kurt Russell makes him so likable at first. Yep. No, I a hundred percent agree with you. And I do think that that is a great point about the way in which, you know, you do see those people who prey on other people and, you know, how they come at you with all of this enthusiasm and charisma and, it feels like love, but it's not. It truly is just a charisma that sucks you in, makes you feel like it's love, and then turns on you and uses you in some way, shape, or form. And that's and, the story of how yeah. we podcast together, really, you know, <laughs> when you think about it. Sorry, could, I couldn't resist the joke. Sorry. Well, it's true. I mean, I don't know. It, you know, you just give me those big puppy dog eyes and I think you're going to change and then it doesn't I never change. will. I'm just going to spoil yeah, it for you right now. Yeah, I, I'm never so. going to. Ne ne never. And, you know, you just don't even have the hair of uh, it's Okay, sad, see, the thing you know? is, now now you're getting nasty. <laughs> see, that's the nastiness behind the love bombing right there. Come on now. <laughs> but um, one of the things I, I did want to ask you just about this movie was the relationship between Peter and Gamora, mm. because this is obviously something that's going to play in later. And, and here it was interesting to see that that is a focus of the film. And yet it doesn't feel like it's either progressed as far as I thought it was going to when I first saw the movie and it doesn't necessarily feel like by the end of it, it's really progressed as far as I thought it would. And mainly this movie only takes a few months later from the the, the first. Uh, that is when it and Gunn said he, he didn't want to do like years later. It, it really is just a few months. So they haven't had a lot of time to kind of move forward uh, in any type of relationship. But how do you feel like that went like are you satisfied i guess with where the relationship plays out in this episode of you know the guardians of the galaxy series or um would you wanted to see more did you expect to see more i think it i think it's good where it went specifically because and i i you just basically said it this is more natural people don't this is this is the fairy tale fall in love through a modern lens where you don't instantly find find out that you're going to spend happily ever after but people have a chemistry and you can see where it's going but it's going to get there in its own due time 
so I think where where it is and where it ends up is very, uh, you know, it, 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 this is going to sound in, in an odd way to say it, but like it's, it's an emotionally mature way to approach their relationship. Mm-hmm. It doesn't put anything on fast forward. Right. And even though he's the most emotionally immature person we've ever seen, you know, though, I, I mean, OK, but but this gets back to what you were talking about with Yondu earlier and, and his influence is we see with Peter and Yondu how we are all a product of our parents. We can't not be. And. Every generation just tries to do a little bit better because we can look back and we can say, I know this person loved me, but they didn't quite do it right. I'm going to try to do it a little bit better, but I still have those shortcomings that they sort of helped program into me. And so I'm continually battling against that. And so, you know, and this is all just in response to, yeah, Peter is immature, but he's immature in the way that many of us are in, in Gen X and and millennial Mm -hmm. land where, yeah, we didn't really put away our childish things. And that's sort of where Peter is. I think that's why Peter Quill is such a relatable character and such a fan favorite is because he never put his toys away. He's still very attached to his toys and we can very much, I mean, you know, look at the shelves behind me right now, you know, that that's, or yeah, or me, exactly. All of us. And so it's, um, I would, I, I, I know I'm going on, but like I, I would hesitate to call him immature. I would call him mm-hmm. uh, emotionally discombobulated. He doesn't know how to express mm-hmm. his emotions because the person who was his father figure didn't express them in a healthy way. Make sense? Yeah. No, I I, I think it does make a lot of sense and i i mean i don't necessarily disagree with with any of that because i do think we are so used to in things where people just kind of jump into relationships and mm-hmm. aren't necessarily ready for them and and when i really think about where these people have been and what they've been through i mean neither of them was really emotionally ready for a relationship you know when what with what gramora has been through in her life and what peter's been through in his life Neither one are really in a place to have a serious relationship they've jumped into after knowing each other for a couple months, you know. Mm-hmm. So I actually think that it's smart to not do that. Um, there is another thing that I think we should talk about in, in as we were watching this movie again, uh, my wife and I, I think this might have been one of the last movies that I saw in 3D. Mm-hmm. With the 3D craze. <laughs> and man, alive. I vividly remember the scene with uh, the arrow in the ship in 3D because it <laughs> looked so good. And that is just one of the best. And, and this is where we could talk about action. But like this is just one of the best action sequences. And it's the perfect music. Everything about it is perfect. Yeah. Well, I, no, I completely agree. I did not see this in 3D because I have a soul. And it was still fantastic. It, it was, um, it is fantastic. And it's very inventive. It's very creative. And that's why it works so well. Is because there's an effort mm-hmm. here. I think that, that the reason why the things that work so well work so well is because Gunn 
is committed to doing them as creatively as he can. What can I get away mm-hmm. with? And you have to respect that. And yes, the, what's really interesting is that part of the reason why this movie works so well at certain points has nothing to do with the Guardians of the Galaxy, but because of stuff related to Yondu. And and I want to throw this slightly, you know, I, I want to see as a, as a final question from me, do you think that the movie suffers in any way because there's an imbalance, in a sense, between what's so enjoyable with Yondu and the stuff on Ego's planet being a little unbalanced with Drax, maybe a little self-indulgent here and there. Do you think that the movie suffers because of that? Do you think it throws the, the storylines, the, the experience out of balance in any way? Not too much because I, I feel like, I feel like this movie really does come together so well and you know as you've mentioned many times before you know a, a good ending and a successful ending could cover a multitude of sins in any movie and any of those imperfections like that by the time the movie ends i'm so emotionally at the place i want to be with this film and these characters and what's happened to them and all of the thematic elements i think have played out really well by the end there too like they've all come to a nice uh conclusion and and wrapped up well um with you know obviously this still the opportunity to to grow these characters in 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 other places or in a third film so yeah no it doesn't i i think that this is this is where i want it to be um by the end of the movie and, and it doesn't feel uneven enough for me to have any real lingering after effects you know the aftertaste on this film like a good scotch is perfect uh i you know <laughs> obviously i like the way you put that um yeah i i wouldn't say it's a good scotch i would say it's a really good beer this is okay. a really good yeah. beer i'm not serving this at a um you know, at, at a, uh, a a conference mixer. Well, actually, that a beer would be a conference mixer. But <laughs> I'm not serving this at a fine dinner party, or you know, someplace right, where people are wearing right. bow ties. But this is this is a sitting around a campfire. Mm-hmm. Wow, where did you get this beer? This is really good. Sort of experience. So yeah, yeah. I guess the only question I was can think of that would be important to talk about would be how does. Awesome Mix 2 compared to Awesome Mix 1. It's tough, man. It it really is tough because, ugh, man, it's difficult. I don't know. I think they're tied, basically. You know, I, I, I think that um, I have some absolutely favorite songs on both, and I wind up thinking, yeah, you know, they're they're both pretty equal. They're both pretty equal. Um, you know the, the the one downside is you know there's an amazing Fleetwood Mac song on Volume Two, but it's a Fleetwood Mac song that uh, I've heard so many times in my life that I can't yeah. <laughs> I can't get there anymore. I can't get there anymore. It's like 
I remember when I loved it as much as I should have, but I, I don't, I can't, it's impossible for me to love it that way anymore. And that, I think maybe that hurts uh, volume too, but mm-hmm. no, I, I, what, what about you? I mean, do you think they're, they're equally matched or do you prefer volume two? No, I, I think they are equally matched and I really enjoy uh, both of the volume mixes. And I think, you know, um, if anything was going to push this one over one, it would be come a little bit closer. And I think part of that is because that scene is just, it is perfection as a scene. And the song has so much to do with that. Mm. And the two people that are in that scene, uh, well, the three, but I mean, the two main people that in that scene with Rocket and, and I mean, yeah, it's just, it's great. So no, I, I think, I think you're absolutely right though. And in the end, they're, they're very evenly matched. And I think what it shows is that Gunn is very good at picking songs that fit the moment that you're in. And, And as one final note, I want to say that the use uh, of Mr. Blue Sky in the beginning is so good. Mm-hmm. And what I realized this time as I was watching it, and I, I've sort of had this thought before, but it, what really drove home this time is Gunn, I think, earns so many points because he treats his audience very respectfully by focusing on Groot during that big battle in the beginning because... It gives us a laugh. We love watching Baby Groot going around. The song is great. Very interesting stuff. And Gunn is treating us respectfully in the sense that it's sort of like a wink saying, look, you know I'm not going to kill any of these people in the opening sequence. Right. Right. Okay. So let's let's have fun and a laugh instead of trying to pretend that anybody's in actual peril right now because Mm -hmm. we know they're not. They're never right. going to be here. Like this yeah. point, they might be in peril at the end, but not right now. And so I, th- mm-hmm. I that's yeah. one of the things that I think works so well and why if I were to compare the openings of these movies, I enjoy, I love the way Guardians of the Galaxy opens. It's so unexpected. It's so fun. It's so fresh. But with this one, it so fully embraces the idea of... M- gently mocking the concept that we feel the need to throw our heroes in any franchise into a big battle Mm -hmm. in the beginning and pretend like they're in danger. Right. And Gunn has the decency to say, you know, it's fine. It's fine. And I I just, I, it makes me respect the movie so much. So, yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree with you. It, you know, so with all that we've had to say about this, you know, where do you come down then with the ratings for Guardians 2? Uh, with Guardians 2, and you're going to think that I'm being too harsh on it, actually. But it's a four. It's a solid four. Mm-hmm. But it's a four. Yeah. You know, this this isn't one. This is This is the type of movie. A four sits in a place where... When I need an escape or I need an emotional release, this isn't mm-hmm. necessarily one that I immediately think of. But when I watch it, I go, right. man, this is really good. So that that's where I am with it. What about you? Yeah, I, I've really, you know, ever, ever since I rewatched the film and I've struggled with, is it still a four or is it a 4.5? 
and I think I'm going to have to land at the fact that this is still a four because, and I think it's really the unevenness that we talked about. And if that had been fixed, this is 4.5 or possibly five, right? And that might mean that it might be above other films that maybe I've rated 4.5, who knows in the rankings, but I still feel like this stays at the solid four. And that's not, you know, I, I may have actually watched this movie more than a lot of the other Marvel movies. Like you said, just because it's so enjoyable, you can kind of put it on anytime. You know, it, it really, it has that feel. And I think it ameliorates a lot of the issues that we had with the first Guardians movie. And it's definitely a more solid and better made film in all areas than the first. But still, there's some, I would say this. After our experience last year with the Suicide Squad by him. Oh, yes. I think that he has some proclivities that actually need reining in more so than they need to be let off the chain. Agreed. And I think not that this movie was specifically in that vein, but I can see the hints of where that will be a problem later on. Yes. Agreed. Insightful. I agree. Yeah, well, it doesn't happen often, so uh, don't get your hopes up. Uh, oh, no, 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 no. I, I mean, this is <laughs> yeah. I, this is the first time you've been insightful the entire time. So, I mean, you know, congratulations. Yeah, I mean, it's got, <laughs> I mean, I'm bound to find, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm like the blind squirrel. I'm bound to find broken clock, broken clock, yeah, right exactly. twice a day. Uh, so then if we're in the rankings, have you got that sorted out for yourself? I do. People might hate me for this, but you know, there are so many better reasons to hate me. And you know, I, I mean the, the rankings always, always juggle because there's, there's one in, there's one that's still in danger of going up and there's one in danger still of going down. Um, let's see if you can guess what they are. Winter soldiers at the top. Okay. Hey, big surprise. Um, <laughs> Iron- <What? laughs> yeah. Iron Man 3, still there at number two. Ant-Man, still there at number three. Slotting in at number four. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Wow. It's the Rooker effect. Rooker is so, so darn good in this. So incredibly good in this. I love watching him. Then the original Iron Man then Guardians of the Galaxy, then Doctor Strange with an asterisk. I reserve the right to have him levitate up with his cape. Uh, Captain America Civil War, asterisk. Might fall lower in the future. Don't know. Still chewing on that. Uh, Captain America, the first Avenger, the Incredible Hulk, uh, the Avengers, Thor, Thor the Dark World, Avengers Age of Ultron, and... Still bringing up the rear for now. Iron Man 2. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I love it. Um, well, okay, so not too much change at my my top. Uh, you know, it's it's Winter Soldier, Iron Man, Iron Man 3, Civil War, and the first Avenger. Uh, top five. Uh, then there was a little bit of a switch, though, because I brought Guardians of the Galaxy 2 up to six. Wow. 
Hey. So, all right. Yeah. Uh, and then seven is Ant Man. Uh, and right. then eight is Doctor Strange. Nine is the Incredible Hulk. And ten right now would be Guardians of the Galaxy. With eleven being the Avengers. Uh, and then twelve, the Dark World. Thirteen, Iron Man 2. 14, Thor, and 15, where it belongs right now, the Age of Ultron. There you go. So. it's You know what? Yeah. It, it's a, again, to borrow the line from Pulp Fiction, it's the little differences, right? It's just the little differences between the lists that are so interesting. Because we're yeah. not that yeah. far off. We're no, still pretty really close. Not. It's it's yeah. really quibbling over tiny little bits. But I, I, well, I expect some controversy thing is soon. I don't know... If that top five for me is ever going to change, that's going to be the thing. Could anything go up into the top five that isn't already there? I'm not sure. Uh, Just so you know, also, I made a point to watch because they've worked them into the uh, this phase, the short films leading up to Thor Ragnarok with uh, on Ah. Disney Plus. They've worked in the the short films that uh, were done with Thor, what he was doing during Civil War. And, you know, the because the, there's also the right. one where he's yeah. having the phone call, where mm-hmm. Banner's having the phone call, they're at a cafe, and you find out Thor's living with a guy in Australia. You know the ones I'm talking oh, about, yes, right? Oh, yes, yes, yes. We're not ranking those, right? No. Okay. We're, we're not, no. Thank goodness. That, 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 that doesn't count. That That's good. That's very good. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, well, boy, we have those so a much... warning, and we didn't know. Yeah, we've got so much left to cover, cover of course. Uh, we've just scratched the surface with Phase 3 as next week we do jump off Disney Plus and everything for Spider-Man Homecoming. Before we get there, John, where can everybody find you if they want to catch up with you and talk about how great your Marvel list really is? Nobody wants to connect with me as Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm around. You can find me. And you can find me over on the Nerd Party uh, on two shows, one being House Lights, where we look at the work of directors, and Aggressive Negotiations, a, I feel it's a fantastic Star Wars podcast. I think it's great. And it's it's due at least in part, a small part, but a part at least, to my co-host, Matt Rushing. I, yeah, I would say a small part. Um, yeah. You know. Uh, yeah, at least to do half with of the part. Um, Let's not but, get ahead uh, of ourselves here. Let's not, you know. <laughs> I I am. I love doing that show with you, and hopefully people will check it out. Of course, you can find me all over social media under the name Matt Rushing Zero Two, Instagram, Letterboxd, Twitter, Twitter, Vero, all of those type of places. Yeah, of course, here on the network with everything else with the Six Hundred Two Club we're doing, as well as the Orb. Literary Treks and Warp 5, the orbs about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Literary Treks is about the books and the comics of Star Trek. Warp 5 is about Star Trek Enterprise. And then on the Nerd Party Network, I did a finished show. It's it's completed now. Uh, it was Owl Post. I did that with Drea Kaufman. We talked about Harry Potter one chapter at a time. So hopefully everybody will check that out. But thank you so much, as always, for joining us. Avengers! 